Welcome to the Men of Sorrows Finding Joy podcast. I am William Lloyd, a man of sorrow. Our podcast is committed to supporting and encouraging men to process their grief in order to heal and return to joyful living in the midst of great sadness. Although it is directed toward men, all are welcome to tune in and participate. Today's podcast is a conversation I had with Ken Dempsey. Ken works as a mental health substance abuse disorder counselor at the VA hospital in West Palm Beach. He works with vets that have suicide ideation. In 2015, his precious daughter, Tina, took her life. And this is where Ken and I found each other, on that long road home, walking the same road. I want to thank you for listening, and let's jump right into my conversation with Ken. Ken, welcome to Man of Sorrows Finding Joy podcast. Oh, thanks, Bill. It's it's great to be here, and I yeah. appreciate this. I appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. For the listeners that don't know you, just kind of tell us who you are, what you do. Yeah, so my name is Ken Dempsey. Uh, do I have to give my age here? I'm 73. Why not? <laughs> Did so, you say 73? 73, yes, sir. You look fabulous. Thank you very much. I'm still oh, working. I hair still for the listeners that don't see it. Well, well my dad had uh, lived to 78 and he had a full head of hair. So yeah. no receding. I was a late I was a late bloomer, to tell you the truth. For a profession, I was a, a, an art student and I got drafted way back during the Vietnam War in 1970, a long time ago. So I wound up in Southeast Asia, but not in Vietnam. And they made me a medic for whatever reason. My scores were such that they made me a medic. I was in the Air Force for like four and a half years and got out. I was enlisted and went to decided to go to uh, nursing school and, and did that. got the RN and then I worked at various places, usually intensive care units, which I liked. And eventually, at just about age 40, decided to go back into the Air Force. I know I could get commissioned. And I thought it was a good thing because by then I had four children. I'm a late starter. But <laughs> at 40, my kids were Tina age. Oh, she was born in 87, Sarah in 90, Brian in 92, and Kevin in 94. So I, within five, six years, I, I'm a father of four. And so went back into the Air Force, uh, moved out to California initially, and then uh, four years and back to Florida and I'm now working you, still. I'm working for the VA now in still in nursing in, in mental health now for about 10 years. When you when you went back into the Air Force, that, that was what, about 33 years ago? Was that was, um, 1996. Uh-huh. And it was kind of a peaceful time, right? You, you didn't At that time, any... it was, 96 to yeah. 2000. And uh, there wasn't much going on. It was the Cold War, really. And I was out in California working in ICU, and I worked part-time in another local ICU. Life was good. The kids loved it and it was a great time for them. Yeah. And then you, and then now, now at the VA, you work with mainly with trauma, um, psychological trauma only, you know, mm -hmm. no, the medical I I've given up for 10 years now, I've been doing mental health. So, uh, substance use disorder and mental health issues. So a lot of, and working ironically, working closely with the uh, suicide prevention folks, sort of an associate member of the suicide prevention team, working for veterans. The veteran population is probably 85% male, 15% female, but it's getting, it's growing the number of females. So and that's pretty much what I'm, what I'm doing now. Do you have, do you have any guys, do you have anyone that's, that's Baker acted there that's suicidal? Do they come to you? Yes, people are Baker acted there, and there uh, those who show up in the emergency room with suicidal ideation are Baker acted in, or voluntarily come in. But if they if they say I am suicidal, I I'm having suicidal ideation, they will be admitted to the mental health ward. And then if they say I'm leaving, then they'll be Baker acted because they say no, you made the yeah. statement, yeah. and so we have to uh, act upon it for your safety, for the safety of others. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so that's pretty much what we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say not to sound, uh, I don't know, 
cynical or anything, but there are times really when people they say they're suicidal and they may not be. And they, the reason they do say it is for secondary gain. That is people who have a drug problem or another problem, a homelessness problem mm -hmm. may say that in order to be admitted and knowing that they would be admitted, at least we'll have three hots and a cot. Uh, but as, realistically, we see a lot of that. And that's in the veteran world. On the outside, uh, it may be a little bit different. Yeah, I, I could see that happening. With the work that you do, is it is it ever really triggering for you? Um, do you want to tell a little bit about your background and your your journey? Yeah, journey. Brief. It's a journey, journey, journey. Um, we had uh, purchased a place in the mountains in North Carolina, and we thought this is so wonderful. And and it was like. Uh, coming together of, of me just getting my finishing up my master's degree and, and saying I I'm uh, I've got a good job and I I'm starting to get social security retirement things are good we have a a little vacation home and then something horrible happened within a few months and that was my daughter took her life my oldest daughter Christine was 29 at the time Tina she died by suicide while we were away we were on a short vacation and it seems as if we we let our we let our gu guards down and we relax and we said take a deep breath now things are good and so when this happened we've clammed up once again and said don't ever ever let your guard down don't ever truly relax because horrible things can happen and yeah, yeah. you know the people with ptsd understand that soldiers veterans and others but also others who have gone through this we were coming back from Asheville Airport and the plane was delayed. It was delayed for like eight hours. We spent the day at the airport. And during that time, my daughter was dying of overdose. She, she took pills to take her life. We uh, came back to the airport and PBI and landed and, and got up to the tarmac, I suppose they call it. And the lights were there, the seat belts were sign went off you can take your seatbelts off and everyone stood up and then there's an announcement please everyone sit down we have to escort two people off of the plane and so we all sat down and go oh, what is this now and so eventually the sky marshal i guess came over to us and uh this is difficult and we were joking right we said oh gee did, did we not was it parking tickets what did we do did we leave the and uh -huh. then we said oh this is some, something's wrong here and we were escorted off the plane and taken into the terminal and uh, someone met us and my daughter, my other daughter was there, my daughter, Sarah, uh, we thought at first that if there was a death, maybe it was our mother-in-law mm -hmm. in her nineties, yeah. but it was uh, my daughter, Tina and Sarah had to tell us that she, she died. It was a horrible, horrible thing. And uh, then I had to drive home from there. And I think that's about all I can say right now that um, the disbelief was there immediately. And we were on the floor quite literally for days, weeks, months. It's hard to say and trying to process and trying to um, come to grips with it. So um, how long ago was that, Ken? It was uh, June 20th, 2015. And that type of thing, it's still it's still very fresh. It's very fresh and it doesn't go you know, away. The, uh, yeah almost immediately went to uh, counseling for the whole family. And eventually my wife and I continued that. It's a lifelong process. And uh, I don't know, there's, uh, yeah, I was attached to suicide and, and uh, people don't understand. And I think that uh, you would know yourself that, uh, you know, who, who died by suicide is important as to the relationship to you. If it's a child, if that, if that person died by suicide as a child, it's a lifelong grief process. We kind of got hit. Forget who told me. He said you got hit with a double whammy because child losses is hard. It's not the natural cycle of life, and then and then suicide complicates it as well. All the all the mental health that you do, all the the trauma work, you're not grieving as that person as a worker. You're grieving as a dad. You're, you're grieving as, as, as a parent, as a dad. I had a lot of knowledge. Self had officiated 
funerals, walked with families through the whole process, and it didn't, it didn't do anything for me. I went through everything anybody else would go through, and it was, you said you were on the floor, and I, I know exactly what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. What are some of the things that really helped you? Counseling, and it was like, if I, if I were younger or a, a different earlier me, I would have said, I don't believe in that crap. Even now I say, maybe I don't, but no, frankly, I'm in the business. It doesn't help, like you said, Bill. Yeah. But I said, you know, counseling makes sense. It makes sense. It, it's not that we're saying we are crazy or we're, we're having a normal reaction to a very abnormal situation. I mean, there's death and there's, there's grieving and bereavement that, for, that I went through for my mother and my father and brother and other brother and does it help um having gone through previous griefs yes but i was not prepared like you bill i was mm -hmm. not prepared for the death of my child yeah. and i was not prepared for the suicide of my child and if there's a scale and i don't believe in scaling or trying to form a hierarchy of what is more painful but i can say that when you lose a child, it's never over. And when you lose a child in a traumatic way, such as a, a murder or a suicide, and especially for a suicide because of the nature of it, it's, it's, um, it doesn't go away and it, you have to deal with it. So we, we did with counseling. And also I have mentioned that I uh, saw a note that my daughter had written in a notebook, we were in her apartment, and she said, I too would love to have a love note. And that night I started writing uh, love notes. I call them love notes for Tina. They were just little notes, and they became, over the next 18 months, they became poems, and then they became, or prose, and then poems, and then even, I don't know, sonnets and little. I even wrote a couple of songs, but to the tune of like 180 uh, writings poems mostly and then another set of poems for another 80 or so so what is that what's 60 uh 240 or 50 or something poems and I, that was cathartic for me too and it was um always uh bill with the with the theme of hope and it was not uh you know like wishful thinking or imitative magic or any of those things that they talk about that you say well, if i say these things it'll make it so it appeared, no, it was um, my, my feeling from my Christian background that God is there and, and there are those who say that he will never give you more than you can handle. I've questioned it many times. I'm still questioning that, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. But that God is there, I believe in Christ and I believe that he died for us and I believe in the power of redemption and how he took on the sins of the world and all of us are, are, none of us are free of sin. We all are sinners. We, although we struggle, we know that God is there somewhere. And my poems reflect that. That's really good, that, that creative outlet. But you really touched on something that really is one of the really central themes of, of my life in this program is that, that idea of hope. Hope is what gives us, it says in the book of Romans, perseverance. I, my background was I, I, I'm a school teacher. I have the gift of teaching and I pastored a, a church as associate pastor and did a lot of funerals and really feet like with a real convinced in my own mind and heart of the promises of Jesus about eternal life. And all that stuff went out the window for a little while during yeah. my, my period of mourning, it didn't, it seemed like it didn't seem possible to me. It seemed like, well, we all, we invented all this, but it all, it all did come back. And what I noticed when I started reading through the scriptures again, you mentioned Jesus taking upon himself the sins of the world and, and dying for our sins. As I looked through the book of Acts, the emphasis on their message was on the resurrection. And that's what caught everyone's attention. That's what got everyone excited. And what I realized was that this death is the worst and 
the resurrection is the good news that this life isn't all there is, that God fixed the ultimate curse of sin. He fixed the death problem. And the hope that I'm going to see my son again, and you're going to see Tina again in new and beautiful ways, that keeps me going every single day. I still hate it. I still cry when I need to cry. That hope and the end in mind that we are going to live on a new heaven and a new earth the universe is expanding. Who knows what God's doing out there? He's still creating. He's still expanding. Our, our children are, you know, they're out of, out of their pain mm-hmm. and suffering. We're here. We're here and we're, we're in pain and suffering. But one of the things that I went through, I don't know if it was your experience, the self-blame, would have, I could have, should have. And I remember one day I was in, my kitchen screaming and thinking about all this and the thought came in my mind which i believe was god speaking to me and sorting through and counseling me was that you're thinking that i sent my son into the world so that you would get your act together what you're saying if i woulda shoulda coulda so that you'd get your act together to keep bad things from happening but that's exactly why Jesus came, because sin and death happens. Still an enemy, death, but he he defeated it all. So that that really is the only that is really the only thing that brought a lot of healing into my life and gives me the courage to go on. One of the things that I noticed, and I think we talked about this, Ken, is that a a report in some of the groups that I went to, they were mostly women. And they talked about a lot of, well, just twice, but it it seemed like it was many. My husband's angry and he stays busy. And that's how he deals deals with the grief. A couple of things. Um, Jesus, the Lord is is forming a new world. And John touches on that in the revelation. He does a lot about that. Um, So we, what we did is went to a group called uh, Survivors of Suicide and it was, it was held uh, at the uh, Jewish Family Services. They were super wonderful. They were really, really wonderful. And I'll tell you, and I, I'll share that here too. That uh, so I made some friends with these people too, and they were, and I would say that we all grieve similarly. Mm-hmm. There's very little difference. And some of the people there had lost sons and uh, daughter, mother. When we first went in, uh, what I saw was. Uh, some people were in there joking and laughing and I, and I went in and I was initially angry. I said, I got to be in the wrong place because I'm not, I'm not one of these people who's going to be laughing. What are you laughing about? I said, obviously this is not uh, survivors of suicide. And so I, I walked out and then somebody followed me out and said, no, Ken, what's your name, Ken? No, it's, we've, many of us know each other. We've been here for a, for some time and I they said come on back in you know we we have to lighten things up with uh you know the humor what do we call it we occasionally call it gallows humor or we call it black humor or various things meaning when things are so horrible you have to find a levity there right so I think mm-hmm. that's what it was so I came back in and and uh people in, we went around the room and people introduced themselves and somebody said yeah my my mother and father both died of suicide six years ago and right away i just started bawling like a baby i said six years i thought this process took um months or a year or two years bill i thought it was <laughs> like other griefs grief that, that um have a an ending or uh what a resolution or a tapering off or something but no suicide doesn't have that and no um death of a child by suicide does not does not have that doesn't carry that and i found that these people were very good and very helpful but i will say that we wanted something more we saw something lacking and that is uh maybe the whole idea of redemption and the whole idea of a savior coming that we will meet again that we're just passing through we're passing through this 
this temporary life. And I, I say, uh, Shakespeare once said in one of his characters, uh, I'm doomed for a time to walk the earth. And yeah, we are. And we, um, it, it can be joyous, and, and often it is, but the reality is uh, elsewhere. It's in heaven. Mm -hmm. We can call it heaven if we want to. People have different words, nirvana and other things, but I think that the way Christians envision the afterlife and the reward is something that is missing in some of the other religions, or there's less of a concentration on the, the everlasting spiritual and more of a concentration on feeling better here on earth about what happened. Mm -hmm. so, I said, we needed something a little more, and that's where Christ comes in. I, I often wonder how, how folks are able to, to heal on any level without, without that promise, without that forgiveness, because after going down the road, I mean, I went down those, the road of would have, could have, should have. Mm. And you know what? There are, I do have regrets. I did make mistakes. And that's where re redemption, mercy, forgiveness. I know that, I know that I'm forgiven. And I know that, I know that Jesus fixed it all. You know, I know that he, I, I know yeah. in my heart of hearts that he, the only way I can express it is he fixed it all. Because it's, a lot of people, and it didn't help me, were saying he's in a better place. He's out of his pain. They were saying that and they meant well, but it, that, that didn't help at the time. It did not, it was not helpful at all. And my attitude was, all right, if that's the case, then why don't we all just check out right now and get out of this hellhole, this mess. But life becomes, there. you see the beauty and the goodness in, in, in life again. You, you see it. You, you re-engage you re and... In fact, it's it's even more beautiful in the background of the sadness, right, for me. In counseling, so I'm going for my uh, doctoral degree in counseling, grief counseling, really, uh, trauma counseling. And I was inspired by daughter's death. I even wrote a, a poem feeling guilt about feeling better about writing poetry. That That's how... <laughs> convoluted it can be this grief process but uh in our counseling they'll they'll tell us that when you're talking to someone that has just lost someone probably the last th last helpful thing that you would say is she's with jesus now so everything is fine and or things like it is meant to be because you have to meet the person where they are and that can be to say that in the early days especially, is not helpful. It's better to seek out, try to feel what that person is feeling and mm -hmm. to say, well, in the end, it all works out and they're with God and it's just not something that a person is ready to hear. Eventually, we'll, we'll work on that for sure, absolutely for sure. And we believe and I pray and uh, my tradition is Catholic and sometimes I'll pray rosary, but Usually I talk directly to Jesus and I'll say, God, you promised us in, in, in Matthew and in the um, Synoptic Gospels. Jesus said, my father has a lot of rooms in his mansion. I, if it weren't true, I would not say this. It is true. And so I say, Lord, I ask you to um, have my daughter in one of those rooms that your father has provided because we know that we have a loving God. We know that Jesus uh, rectified a lot of the harshness really i would have to say of the old testament sternness uh and condemnation and jesus said he was without sin pick up throw that stone be the first right. to throw the stone and and other things he was very forgiving but the i noticed that the apostles too are even peter at the last moments wasn't really understanding and mary when magdalene when he came she came to them and said, the Lord has told me to tell you this. This is the message. I have seen him. They didn't yeah. believe it because yeah. these guys are ordinary men. And there were 12 or maybe 11 at that point. Yeah. And they still didn't, they didn't get it. They really yeah. didn't get it until the Holy Spirit came down to them. And they saw Jesus and Thomas put his hands into the wounds. They got it on a certain level, but they didn't get it. And we're still struggling. I'm still struggling to really get that. Now that I look at that too, I see the I see the grief. 
you know, I see the grief brain because he did tell them that I will rise again. He told them that he was going to be delivered over. And when it happened, they, they panicked, they freaked out, you might say. But I, I, now I think that pro, pro, most likely grief played into that because they built a relationship with the Lord those, those three, and three years. He loved them. They learned to love him. And now he's gone. He, he's dead. With Liam, some of the things that that he suffered, that he had a very strong belief. You know, the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, was one of his favorite stories. Mm -hmm. You know, and then I pictured in my mind that he's at heaven, he's there, but he's mad at me. I don't know. (laughs) Because I adopted him and his biological mom's in heaven. She's mad at me. His biological oh. father's in heaven. They're all mad at me for not taking care of him. That's right. where my brain went. No, right? Yeah. That's the grief brain that you talk about. Yeah. The grief yeah. Brain, for sure. It, it was, it was, it, the, the, in the beginning, the thought of afterlife created anxiety more than anything. I was, I was really a mess. It was a total upside down thing for me. One of the other things I noticed, and this is the, the type of work you do, is after I even I started getting a little bit better to where I could function, I noticed like between 4.30 and 5, between 4 o'clock and 5 every day, I'd, my, my whole body would like I'd get, my whole body would start like hurting and get the anxiety again and I'd feel tense. And what we figured out is that that's when the detective called me. So every day I was gearing up. That's the post-traumatic stress. Oh my God. Yeah. My my grief counselor was he was a Vietnam veteran and a medic too. He he went in the choppers that went down to the red zones to get the wounded. Yeah. So he saw some pretty horrible things there. And he knew Liam since he was new knee high. Kind of recruited him to be my grief counselor. And we we sorted through a lot of things. And I went to the Compassionate Friends, which hospice is for parents, and then the, the, the Jupiter Suicide Support Group. And I went to both of them because it really, just going to those helped me not to slip in denial and helped me to kind of face the awful pain. You know, each step was more of a step that this is real. There's a lot of people offering a lot of help that we've mm-hmm. had. And wonderful, well-meaning people. And one gave us a, uh, a book written by two guys that were healthcare professionals, but not psychologists. And, and uh, the op- one of the opening statements was, in my 20 years of experience, they talked about the, the grief with uh, Kubler-Ross, denial, anger, bargaining, resignation, acceptance, or denial, anger, anger bargaining, depression, uh, acceptance. It's different. But uh, this guy starts out by saying, in my 20 years, I've never met anyone in denial about a death. And right away, I said, this book is not for me. (laughs) Because people can be in denial just because they come to you doesn't mean they're not in denial. I go back into denial frequently, not anymore, but I did. Yeah, It really didn't happen. It could not have happened because there was nothing what in my... uh, schematics that, that say this this is something that could happen because it's it just wasn't in the books or the stars or the prophecy or anything and yet mm-hmm. we have to reconcile it somehow and then i've had one person say to me i think suicide is very selfish believe me like jesus said when peter said something behind me satan yeah i don't want to hear that shit. Excuse yeah. my language that's all right because you really don't know what the flock you're talking about. You yeah. Know, repeating something you said, and this person was a social worker. Yeah. Stop. Um, and then I've had people say, there are things like, well, wait, didn't that happen last year? And you're still, I say, you need to stop. Yeah. Frankly, Bill, it doesn't happen a lot to us. We don't, we, we uh, avoid people like that. Yeah. And yeah. Listen, yeah. You just know that they're not your person. They're not going to be one lick of lick of help with. And and the thing is, is 
they can't they can't know you can't know the, the, the pain the depths of sorrow the there's just no way you couldn't describe it to somebody and they really they really can't know i had i had a friend that lost her son about a year i don't know five months after my son died yeah so it was apologizing because now now she knew and she was apologizing to me for not understanding. I said, there's, there's, you just couldn't understand. I said, yeah. if this didn't happen to me, I would not be able to understand. We can sympathize. We can know that they're going through something terrible, but empathy only comes when you've, when you've walked that road. Amen you know? to that brother. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, it's not an easy road. I have two close friends, my best friends for over 50 years. <laughs> At that period, I was living in New York, and um, Bill, his name is Billy, and he's my best friend. And then female friend is Diane, and wonderful people. Billy has never had children. He's gay, too. And Diane has, hasn't had children either, uh, but uh, was the oldest in a family of seven and had was a mother role, you know. She had a mother role there mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. And he's lived through horrible traumas her mother was murdered there was uh, a murder when she was 16 years old her mother was murdered mm -hmm. and then later she had a brother murdered by another brother and i said these these are horrendous horrible i i really feel for you i love you i i and i can't say to you i know how it feels because i don't know how it feels but now um both of them are saying to me oh my god it's going to be seven years since my daughter's death, uh, I used to count the days and the, the weeks. And they, they've said to me in different ways. Diane said to me, Kenny, please stop mourning. And I said, everyone's yeah. grief is different. My friend Billy will say, uh, look at what Diane's been through. She's been through all of that. And she's, she's doing fine. Kenny, you need to. I said, no, stop. Please stop. And Diane is very Christian. She's born again Christian. And she, she'll say that. She, she uh, tends to minimize, minimize it and say, I just turn it over to Jesus and I don't worry about anything. And I say, that's, that's wonderful. And I would like to do that too. And I try, I really do. But I, I don't want to uh, say that, all I'll say is that you, your uh, experience was different and none of you lost a child. And I'm not trying to be hierarchical here. None of you lost a child and no, none of you have lost someone to suicide because these are two dimensions that are that make it, Bill, as you know, untenable, un, unmanageable. Not, I can't say unmanageable. We're trying to manage it, but it's horrific and life lasting. So, but yeah. we try. We yeah. continue to try. Yeah. That's, that was a constant that I was told and I learned too that everybody grieves differently, there's no timeline. There's no right or way, wrong way to do it. I wanted to do it right. Th that was my mentality. I have to, you know, I have my my other children, and I have to be there for them. And my biggest fear is I was gonna I was gonna just lose everything else, and I was you know so lost as it is. The good thing about when you're at a a, a suicide support group, they all know. They all know. The complications they all know the road that that you have to walk and i really for me you can't talk people out of that if they're saying i wish i i should have done this i should have done that or even it's my fault i mean in the beginning that's what i verbalized this was all my fault nobody nobody could convince me otherwise you know i knew better but when, when God spoke to me about it, when he gave me a revelation and spoke to my heart, it's kind of like in counseling, we would talk about it, that you have your, your subconscious mind and your core beliefs. So yeah. it has to go past your thought process and it has to really be pushed into your core belief that no, this wasn't your fault. You know, And that's, that's kind of what happened. It, it, somewhere yeah. along the line, I, I let myself off the hook. You it did. still comes back. You remember the movie, A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe? Yes, yes, yes. He got off the medication and the people were right in his face. 
And then he learned to ignore them. And then they were shouting at him from across the street. That's kind of the way those voices of guilt yeah. are for me now. I I still hear them, but I they're they're back there. And I'm like, just go away. And I don't have to entertain them. They still try to get my attention, though. I'm there too. And and I can tell you that even seven years later, um, we're plagued with guilt and and strangely. One of the things that binds us together in our marriage is shared guilt or <laughs> respect for the other's guilt, where I will say to her, you did the best you could. You, uh, And then she'll say, well, you were a good father, too. And we we do that instead of yeah. me saying you should have or her saying yeah. you should have. I yeah. do a lot of that freaking should have, could have for myself, and she does it all the time to herself. We uh, are able to bond together with that and do, yeah. do other things but the guilt is pervasive it's it's everywhere my counselor said to me stop <laughs> it was like there was a there was a skit sometime with uh some time ago with a uh, psychologist it was maybe it was uh newhart is that what his name is Bob and, newhart? Uh, yeah his psychiatrist and a patient and he says to the patient stop it he goes <laughs> well you know doctor he says stop it just stop it <laughs> yeah. well it wasn't quite as dramatic as that but my psychologist said ken why will you not accept that it is not your fault and i go because i know i could wait a minute let's do it one at a time here why do you persist on blaming yourself and i said because there's a lot a whole lot of reasons i could have done so many things so one of the exercises she had me do bill was um write 500 times and i go this is like i'm back in catholic school the nuns oh boy five, yeah five write 500 times and she probably knew that and was doing that. But I forgive Tina and Tina forgives me 500 times. So even while I was on vacation, I'm writing it and I'm writing it and I'm writing it. And uh, so it's a little bit of that prolonged exposure that, that I have been through in yeah. PTSD, where you, if you say it enough times, you will eventually internalize it. I don't know. And I hope I'm not talking too much, but if one no. of the things you mentioned was groups and we we had our our one group that was uh not not a christian group it was a different religion lovely people they were so wonderful we would hug hug them just lovely people and then i said there's something else we want and we went to another group which was for people who lost children mm -hmm. and i said we are more we're more what at home this this fits us better and then i realized that there's a group that lost a child here mm -hmm. and that's, but they still didn't lose children through suicide. And then the yeah. other group has suicides, but they didn't lose children and they're not Christian. So we have to find our own way through this. And um, because it's a different, if you're a Christian and if you lost a child and that child died of suicide and there were other conditions where uh, you said that, you know, you could have, that you could have done better. These are things that, that go on forever, and I'm still we're struggling with them, but we we do uh, deal with them and we uh, reinforce each other. One of the interesting thing is that I do counseling, but it's it's pastoral counseling. So I help people in their relationship with God as related to the scriptures. If someone was to come in and they're under mental health counseling and, and tell me something like, well, I I feel better doing this, so I'm going to get off my medication. Oh. I say, if you're going to get off your medication, I'm not going to see you anymore unless you have a note from your psychiatrist, <laughs> say, right? Because Good I, don't do, I don't do mental health counseling. I do pastoral counseling, and I'll talk to people and help them sort through things with how their view of God, how they believe God sees them. But one of the things that, and I don't know if you did this with your counseling background, but my wife, when I was blaming myself, she said, what would you tell somebody if they came in your counseling office? Yeah, right. And they said, my son took his life and I know it's my fault. I wasn't, I tried to weasel out of it by saying, well, I would have to know all the circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, you're weaseling out. <laughs> yeah. And then she don't weasel out of it. And I said, I would, I would sort through the scriptures and show them that, you know, it really isn't their fault that, that God loves them. And, yeah. you know, God has, 
you know, the, the thing that bothered me the most, the idea that, well, God took Liam, you know, God took Liam home, you know, and God yeah. knows when everyone's going to die. I struggle. I did. I struggled with that. I said that that doesn't make sense. He took his life. He took his life. God didn't call him home. I struggled with that. And the only little bit of peace I found with it was in hearing people's story, even people that on 911, you know, 911, they talk about one person talked about how they had a blister and they had to stop to go and, and get a band-aid at the drugstore in the city, and they never got to the tower, you know, they, they kept them from being in the tower when the hit. So I say, okay, that's great, but what about the people that were in the tower? Two two men have been on the podcast that they tried to shoot themselves. My son took his life and they're gun jammed. So I said, oh, that's great. You know, why didn't God do that for my son? So, but the idea was, yes, God will intervene. And if he doesn't, that's his way of saying, come home. That's his way of, of saying it's time to come home. That's, that's the only little bit of peace that I got is saying, okay, I could, I could look at it that way. Otherwise, it just was a big tragedy, and there was nothing good about it, and there was no silver lining at all. That's that's kind of what I went through. I look at scripture and being in this school. So I, my uh, schools have always been Christian schools. I don't know. I seem to lean to it, but it was a Catholic school uh, for my bachelor's degree. Then the next for my master's was a Lutheran school, and currently. I'm in a, a school which is evangelical. It's Jerry Feld, Feldwell uh, founded Liberty. Liberty. Wonderful people. And my actually my doctoral um, chair is uh, as a pastor, black female pastor. Many of the, the people who teach here, the professors are pastors. The routes for counseling uh, and nursing and medical and, and the pastoral are, are so, so, so very similar. And I know that in, in the military when we are and i was an officer and i was achieved uh lieutenant colonel but we the uh medical people and the pastoral people cannot be commanders of a unit because we're too <laughs> we we uh, are too forgiving you can't yes. do that when you're in the military you have to some be somebody who is going to kill the enemy and so we yeah. uh, we don't kill the enemy and so there are different one thing is uh, struggling with the scriptures, and we know, and this is a tough, tough, tough subject. This is the toughest, I think, really, and that is scriptural views of suicide. The uh, and you'll, the Old Testament is has several areas where, of course, they condemn suicidality, and um, so what is my view, or what have I found? And maybe is this is just what one doctor told me one time is daddy denial. It was regarding something else, uh, a diagnosis he gave my daughter of ADHD. And I said, no, I mean, where is the actual diagnosis? You're just using a checklist. Yes, she does this. And he said, no, that's daddy's now. Well, the same thing, I think, really, when I'm looking at the Old Testament and, and uh, the areas where suicide is condemned, and I'm, I'm praying, I'm praying to God, guide me here, because I'm in terra incognita here. Guide me through it because I know that condemnation is there, but I know that, and with the guidance of some of my counselors, uh, I have to refute some of the uh, tenets of my own sect, which was Roman Catholic, that has changed through the years. But at, at one time, a person who, who died by suicide was condemned forever. And you might have heard that. Uh, and does the Old Testament say that? Not in so many words, I don't think. And uh, and I would remember that that the the people that wrote the Old Testament, I feel that they were divinely inspired, but I I know too that they had no knowledge of things like mental illness, uh, depression, some of the diagnoses that we have nowadays. Mm -hmm. They thought a person was having a fit was possessed by the devil. This is not the same thing. In the I think in our modern understanding, in uh, among Christians, whether Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical. Is not a condemnation, but Christ came here as a forgiver. He uh, forgave the the tax collector Matthew, who who repented, <laughs> but also uh, the the um, prostitutes and the others, and and so many other sinners. We we focus on prostitutes as if they were 
particularly bad, but no, there's so many other sins there that are so much worse. He was here about forgiveness and not being judgmental and a kind and loving Christ who fulfilled the prophecy of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in my feeling, uh, came here to tell us, no, there's, there's news, there's good news. And this is that I have taken on these sins myself and I, I will die for you and now have died for you to end it all and give you all the opportunity to come into heaven. And um, sinners are forgiven and, and, and people make mistakes. And I think that in the Old Testament, if I were writing at that time, I would certainly have that same take that don't say something like suicide is acceptable under certain circumstances. No, the message is we don't want people to die by suicide. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Now, don't give anybody the impression. And what I'm saying, yeah. I don't want any kids to think, well, he's saying it's all right. No, no, I'm not saying that's all right. It's no. not okay. There are, we're, we're here to help you. And, and whether it's help through Christianity, another religion possibly, but certainly uh, there are mental health reasons. We can help you. There are alternatives and don't take your life. Uh, but, um, and you mentioned something too, and I may be talking too much and I, I'm on a roll, I suppose. But one of the poems that I wrote was uh, about the cross of bronze on the wall because my daughter, when she died, there was a cross on the wall, a bronze cross. And um, and I, I wrote this to, to Jesus. I said, did were, were there words exchanged? You know, did you, did she plead to you? Did you look at her? And uh, could there not have been intervention there? And I know that you, you talked about intervention too, and somehow God in his wisdom doesn't intervene in that person's plot against themselves. And that person who takes their lives, I think is not trying to do something evil at all. They're, they're often in, in the, often and in the case of my daughter thought that others would be better off without them her child would be better off without her and she was so depressed that she couldn't find any other way out and this is what i see mm -hmm. and this loving god up there is accepting people who have been in despair and have taken their own life and now i'm um certain of it i it's a journey that still goes on i don't know of any place in the bible that says that that's unforgivable or <laughs> or anything like that that idea of the unforgivable sin comes from mark where jesus said all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them but the sin against the holy spirit will not be forgiven but mark goes on to say jesus said that because they were saying jesus has a demon jesus has an evil spirit so basically what Jesus was saying that, and I mean, it's this beautiful blanket decoration of forgiveness, all yes. sins and blasphemies, all will be forgiven. All means all. I mean, I used to think sin was pretty bad, but if someone talked about blasphemy, I'd be like, oh my goodness, you know, he said, all sin and blasphemy will be forgiven except the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is really interesting. He says that will not be forgiven, not in this age or the age to come. Meaning, for me, I see the possibility and a chance of post-mortem, like when you die, you, you meet Jesus, and he says, come to me. Yes. You know, because what he defined there, when he said that because they said that Jesus had a demon. So if Jesus has a demon, he's not the son of God. He's not the savior. And you're not going to go after him and you're not going to accept what he's given. I don't think it's unforgivable. And I even had a friend of mine who lost his wife. I, I saw him at the gym, you know, some years later and asked him how he was doing. And he knew, like he knew Liam took his life and he goes, I just don't want to be here. I don't want to be, you know, I want to be with my wife. I hate it here. I don't want to be here. The only reason I don't kill myself is I don't want to go to hell. You know, and I sat there listening. It didn't bother me. And that, that's, because that's I, enough. <laughs> yeah, because I know, I know that I, I know, I know Liam's safe and sound, and I know that I'm right. I'm gonna I'm gonna see him again. One of the things that I needed an extra boost for me is 
I read John Burke's book called Imagine Heaven. And yeah, I don't know if we have that book. Yes. Yeah. I said, for once we have science on her side, on our side. But I thought about the story of the girl in there. She had a drug, a drug problem and she was addicted. And she she took her life. She this is one of the things she said. She she was with God, she was with the angels, with Jesus. She said, the first person I met in heaven was me, her true self. Depart like from the depression, depart from the drugs. The first, she was free. She said, the first person I met was me. I love that. Because our real identity, our true identity is in God, is in Christ. And his, his adopting us. Anise died of uh, overdose some years ago. And her brother recently said to me, you know, I really think it was a suicide. I said, what? I didn't know that. And he said, she was desperate and she knew these drugs would kill her. And she uh, did it in maybe not a 100% deliberate way, but rather in a passive way. And I have seen that. And I work in substance use disorder. Some people call it substance abuse. I go for the gentle term, substance use disorder. But that's how I feel. It's a disorder. and uh, these guys, some sometimes they're gals, will uh, do drugs. And is it a form of slow suicide? Is it uh, some way of, of um, expressing suicidality? In, in some cases, it is. Some cases, and we may never find yeah. that out. That's, you know, that's funny because I, one of the things I talked um, when I was talking to John, and he has a lot of experience with counseling and addiction and mental health i i said when a friend of mine their their child overdosed i said it's the same it's the same motivation that the drug use they're trying to escape the pain that you know their life brings pain that living brings at the current moment and they're numbing it where the person that that takes their life is just thinking that they're ending it too but john said that um, many uh, didn't have any hard, fast data, but he said that he believed and others believe that a lot of what's reported as overdose is our suicides as well. Before we wrap up, you want to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing with Liberty and your doctorate and uh, interviewing and, and working with people? Yeah. Survivors? Thank you. They all have a title, so... Uh... Mine is resiliency and buffering contrast between military and civilian families as factors in suicidality. I, uh, That's a long title. I know, and but most of them are longer than that. And I go, yikes! That's quite a title. But it, it focuses on uh, little nuances, and that is between the military-connected people and those who were in the civilian sector. Are there things that we might draw out there, find out about differences that make the military and veteran population uh, twice as likely to die by suicide. That's what uh, some of the, the uh, focuses are here. And I'm uh, looking at mostly the, uh, the comparisons are uh, uh, that we're mostly very much the same. Just, I think, uh, uh, among uh, the various sects in Christianity were very much the same. There's little differences here and there, but I think too, between the military and the civilian population, there's uh, the uh, differences may be very small, but I'm going for those little differences to see if there are certain peculiarities of the military family, mm-hmm. family members that make them more likely to die by suicide. And there's a lot of research uh, about suicide. Uh, suicidality. There's no shortage. There's, I have over 200 resources in my, my uh, reference pages, uh, 40 pages long, no, 35 pages long. There's a lot written about it, but there's not a lot written about family members of uh, military families. So a lot about the soldier, seller, airman, marine, guardian, but what about the wives or what about the children of of these uh, military members, is there something there that might have something? Is there something about the whole military family 
life that makes them more vulnerable to suicide? Is it the moving around? Is it the vagaries? Is it the dad going off to deployment? Is it uh, other other factors that make the military family system less stable? So that's where I'm, I'm uh, concentrating so, on right now. Yeah. So is there is there is the rate among suicide higher with military families, not just the veterans, not just those that's, that are active? You know, that's where there's not a lot of data, and that's why okay. I'm looking at this. Yeah. You'll hear the rate uh, for uh, veterans is twice that of the national average in general, and and you really will hear different statistics. But uh, and the 22 a day is about yeah. where we are with that, and we say 22 veterans. Uh, die every day from suicide. One thing to remember, though, is that more more men than women die from suicide. More women attempt suicide, but fewer are successful. So the suicide rate among men is higher than women. And why? Because men usually use uh, more lethal means. And in the military, remember that it's 85% male. So there's an automatic built-in. Men die by suicide more. I never use the word commit, by the way. Men die by suicide uh, more often than women. There are more men in the military. That's one of the factors there. When you uh, that's taken into consideration, there's still a higher rate of of death among soldiers. And I say soldiers, sailors, marines, airmen, and guardians too. And that we has been examined and it continues to be examined and it must be examined. But I'm looking too into others in the military milieu, the, the family members, and there's less data as I said there. Oh, wow. The podcast I had a while back, X-22 Adventures, they they said if you add first responders, firemen, policemen, yeah. to that number, it's about 37 a day, that it's high among them also. I, I um, teach uh, once a month I do uh, at the VA, I do a crisis intervention team, and we have the Palm Beach Sheriff's Office come in, and we're the objective is to have all the police officers in the whole county in every uh, precinct uh, educated on crisis intervention team. It's a one-week course, and I do four hours of it where I talk about veterans specifically. And one of the things we, we see and I see is that the, the commonalities between the, the police and the veterans are tremendous. Um, and the police put their, put their asses on the line every single day. And the, the rate of PTSD is high. The rate of suicide is very, very high among police officers and yeah. uh, first responders, firefighters, others. So, yeah, it's very high. It's, it's similar. Yeah, we had a terrible, terrible tragedy here in St. Lucie County. Uh, I heard years. Yeah. Well. I remember I, that. I um, am sure glad that we met and that yeah. um, through Terry Fleming, we were able to to get together and talk and. Um, I definitely want to, you know, stay in touch with you and, um, you know, learn more about, you know, the work and how, you know, more data and, and things that you get. But I really want to thank you for coming on, for sharing your story and your journey. You know, we're, we're part of something that we, we definitely did not want to be. Um, but if we can, I, I, I feel if I can help others, yeah. give them a little bit of relief, hope, something, um, yeah. then, then that's a good thing because I'm, I'm forever grateful because I didn't think I would ever function again. I went from wanting to jump in the grave with Liam to actually smiling and laughing again. And I, I, you know, I could put on a fake smile, <laughs> but I think I told you, I remember the first time I genuinely laughed and my daughter Grace kind of looked at me and we both realized what happened. Anything else you want to add before yeah, we wrap it someone, up? Someone uh, said to me that to me one day, too, was somebody I work with, a colleague, who heard me. She said, Ken, it's so good to hear you laugh again. And I said, I didn't realize and it was years. But uh, I would say that from what, I, what I'm seeing and finding and experiencing with my my daughter and with uh, others in the family and other people and veterans and military members is that the one factor that is most uh, significant, I think, is connectivity, being connected with someone, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's spiritually or socially, 
uh, if a person starts backing away from socializing, they suddenly there's changes in, in how they're acting, be suspect and be the person that says, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Mm. Are you thinking yeah. about killing yourself or are you thinking about hurting yourself? Some will say, yeah. to, you're putting an idea in their head. No, we don't feel that way. You should ask. And you say, yeah. because it's help. Yeah. I can help you. Stay connected. Make sure that that person is not disappearing in the in the shadows or something. Make them stay connected. Yeah. Good word. Amen. All right, Ken. Thank you so much again for coming Amen. on. And I'm going to put some of the information, the books that we talked about, and things in the show notes. 